We're going to be looking at Proverbs 31 this morning, but as an introduction, and we'll come back around to this at the very end, I want us to read the beginning of Matthew 2. So you don't have to turn there in your Bible. You're obviously welcome to, to do that. The verses are going to be up on the screen, but we're going to w- read the story of the three wise men. Well, we don't obviously know that there were three. It's kind of a traditional element. We're going to read the story of the wise men as we think about what it is to understand Proverbs 31 here in just a couple of minutes. Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And then in verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their own way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray as we get started studying God's word. Father, I pray that if we're ever tempted to think about Jesus as merely a good teacher, as merely someone who helps us to have a better or more productive or easier life, that we would be reminded of who he truly is, God with us, the one who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our lives. And as we see the picture of selflessness, as we see the cross, what it is that Jesus died for us, Father, that we would turn to him, that we would trust in him, and that that would transform everything about our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, you know this as well as I do, but many times churches are more known for what they're against than for what they're for. Uh, You may think of religion as a long list of no's. In a previous generation, it was don't drink, don't dance, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. At least that's what my grandma told me. Uh, It was you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't go to the movies, you don't play cards, you don't wear this. And sometimes we, we think about religion along those lines and that mentality is still there. And it's true, we have to be careful with that. That religion is not just this long list of no's. That it's not do this, don't do this, and then you'll be made right with God. There, there is a real danger in that. But what we don't want to miss 
is that when we turn to Jesus Christ and we realize that that salvation, that forgiveness is free, that we don't earn that, we don't earn that forgiveness by doing good things, we don't earn that forgiveness by not doing bad things. When we turn to him, we find that salvation, he does begin to transform our lives and part of that transformation is learning to say no to things. My generation, in many ways, has reacted against previous generations, and so we've completely taken no off the table, and we've just said yes to everything. Well, that's not the direction to go. That's not helpful. That's not biblical Christianity, where the Lord is leading us. What we have to learn is, what do we really say no to, and then what do we really say yes to? How do we say no to the things that take us away from God's will and God's purposes for our lives in order to say yes to the things that we really need to give our lives to? And if you need a New Year's resolution, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about in my own life. What do we need to say no to? What do I need to say no to in order to be able to say yes to the right things? It might be saying no to a sin, to a temptation, to something that I know is destructive that's not right, or it might just be saying no to something that just wastes my time. It might be saying no to something that isn't necessarily bad, but it's not particularly helpful either. If you read a lot in business books or social theory, I know this sounds a lot like Jim Collins and good to great. How do we say no to the things that are just good in order to say yes to the very best things? And that's true. That, that is what we're trying to figure out is what do we say no to and what do we say yes to? It's true we don't want to drink, chew, or go with girls who do, but there's a lot more to religion than that. There's a lot more going on. And I want you to see in Proverbs 31 what that looks like. Proverbs 31 starts out, and it says the words of Keen Lemuel, an, or, an oracle that his mother taught him. Now, we know, just like in Proverbs 30 with Agur, we know almost nothing about Lemuel here. We don't really know his background, we don't know his story, we don't know much of any information that would be helpful for us, other than obviously he's a keen. In Proverbs, you have King Solomon offering so much of the wisdom in this book. But don't think about it in the sense that, well, I'm not a king, so there's nothing here for me. Think about it more in the sense when Proverbs talks about a king doing something, it's meant that what that king does would trickle down into the entire kingdom. And so it would become true for that kingdom. As part of the kingdom of God, what Lemuel learns here is something that we all need to learn. And what Lemuel learns here came from his mommy. Every good thing that Lemuel knows here comes from his mom. It says in verse 31, this word, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. You can imagine Lemuel being asked to give a Proverbs. Like, hey Lemuel, you're the king now. You need to come up with something really wise to say. And Lemuel starts tracking through his mind. He's like, well, I remember what my mom told me one time, and so he starts to give that advice because that's the best advice he can come up with. This follows a pattern in the book of Proverbs of the fact that God's wisdom is passed generation from generation. If you back all the way up to Proverbs chapter one, you see how God's plan is that wisdom would be passed from a mother and father to the children, and usually, many times, that happens through the mother. Sometimes when people look at scripture, 
they look at scripture and it seems misogynistic, it seems anti-female, it seems like all the women get the bad rap, but don't forget when you look at the book of Proverbs, you have Lady Wisdom, you have the woman at the end of Proverbs 31, but you also have women like Lemuel's mom who are passing down this wisdom generation to generation. 2 Timothy 1.5, when Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. There are probably many of you here this morning who when you look back at your life, or maybe even right where you are in your life right now, your key faith influencer was a mom or a grandma. Someone who was speaking the word of God to you, who was telling you the stories of scripture, who was urging you to stay connected with church, stay connected with your faith. That pattern that still happens in our lives is reflected really well here in Proverbs 31. So what does Lemuel's mom say to him? Well, in verse two it says, what are you doing, my son? (laughs) What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Now there's a good chance that many of you mothers have looked at your children and said, what are you doing? Uh, You may have added a few other words in the middle at different times, but what are you doing right now? Have you lost your mind is usually the way it's translated in 2017 language. Have you lost, what, what's going on here? She can see something in her children's life. Mothers are able to see around corners and mothers are also able to see into the future. And they can look into their kids' lives, they can look into their grandkids' lives, and they can see decisions being made, and they can see paths that the kids and grandkids are taking, and they can say, I know where that path leads. What are you doing? Don't go down that path. That's what Keen Lemuel's mom is saying to him. What are you doing? And why is she able to say that? She's able to say that because you are son of my womb. Translated, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of this world. You came from me, God has given you to me, and I'm going to speak into your life. And on top of that, she says, son of my vows. This makes us think of Hannah in the Old Testament, where she says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. We kind of think about this in modern day church life. We'll sometimes do parent-child dedications, which as we understand that theologically has a lot more to do with the parent than it does with the child, that that parent is saying, I'm gonna make a vow that I'm gonna speak God's word into this child's life. Hear me out on this point as an application point and and just kind of track with me for a minute. I realize my age, I realize the age of my kids. I do not need to be giving parenting advice to anybody, okay? So, so here, I wanted this to reflect God's word and not my, my age or the age of my children. Scripture knows nothing of hands-off parenting. Uh, this idea that's very common, and, and I say it's very common, that's kind of a general statement, but it, it's fairly common in our world that when it comes to moral and spiritual decisions, I'll just kind of let my kids figure it out I'll be very hands-off. They can kind of follow different paths, kind of figure out what works best for them. Scripture knows nothing of that form of parenting. It is teaching and training your kids. It is speaking into their lives. It's saying, here's the way. It leads to life. It leads to life because it came from the Lord, and my responsibility is to speak that into your life. Now, that can be done in the wrong way. 
I, I completely acknowledge that. That can be done in the wrong way that any, what Ephesians says where you provoke your children to wrath, that's not helpful. That can re- cause rebellion. It can cause them to turn away. But scripture just knows nothing of hands-off parenting. Equally so, in scripture, you don't see helicopter parenting either. There's this sense of responsibility. It's, I will speak into your life. I'll show you this is the way you should go. I'll speak God's word to you. And then it's your responsibility to, again, put that into action. And so somewhere we see this picture of parenting, this picture of raising children in scripture that is not hands-off parenting, but it's not helicopter parenting. It's this wise shepherding idea of providing God's wisdom to your children, to your grandchildren, to your godchildren, to your nieces and nephews, providing that in such a way that you acknowledge, and yes, now you've got to take responsibility and put it into action. I know there's no formula for that. I know there's no easy way to do that, but we, find, we have to find a balance between hands-off parenting that's super dangerous and helicopter parenting that's just awkward a lot of times. How can we figure out where to go in the middle that matches God's word? Okay, why is the mom so concerned? She's concerned because she gets to verse three. Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. She's concerned about who her son is dating, apparently, at this point. But actually, there's more to it than that. I kind of make light of it because there's, there's actually a lot more. There's a good chance that, at this point, King Lemuel may even be married. But we've seen over and over in the book of Proverbs where sexual unfaithfulness, sexual temptation can pull someone away from the things of the Lord. And this mom is looking into her son's life, and she knows that it's not women who are the problem. It is the women who want to destroy kings who are the problem. And as moms look into their kid's life, they know it's not a relationship that's a problem, it's destructive relationships that are the problem. And so she wants to be able to speak in to Lemuel's life and say, don't give your strength away. Don't waste your life on someone who is ultimately out for their own good and just wants to destroy your life in the process. Long before there were cleat chasers, there were crown chasers. Uh, There were people who, ladies who were saying, I'm out for my own good, what I can get out of this. And Lemuel's mom can see this coming and she wants to cut it off before it ever happens. So that takes us to verse four and five. If it's not women who are gonna take down Lemuel, it's probably gonna be wine. Verses four and five. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Okay, there's a couple of things to notice here in in verses four to five. In verse four, there's that focus on Lemuel as a king. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. And then if you go to the, that's the beginning of verse four. If you go to the end of verse five, the very last word in verse five is afflicted. The writer of Proverbs is, sitting, is setting up a particular contrast here between the kings, the ones who are in power, and the afflicted, the ones who are in need, who are poor, who need help. So there's a very clear contrast that's gonna carry through the end of this passage. And then the words drink, forget, and pervert, so change, deprive, obviously a negative word there. Those three words, if you speak them in Hebrew, and I'll save you the punishment of 
hearing me speak Hebrew because it's horrible. Uh, but when you speak them in Hebrew, they sound the same. Not exactly the same. They sound similar. So if someone would have heard this poem being read, on purpose, the words drink, forget, and pervert sound similar because the author wants you to hear those words together. She's telling her son, if you drink, it's going to cause you to forget, and if you forget, it's going to cause you to do actions that are going to hurt those who are most in need. Drinking leads to forgetting, leads to hurting. You're like, well, that pattern sounds familiar. That pattern is one that you yourself may have lived through, maybe living through right now. And I realize when it comes to the topic of alcohol abuse and alcoholism, this is not an abstract idea. This is something that is real people, real hurt, real situations. It's not just a keen in the Old Testament and his mom talking. It's families right now in 2017. And I didn't plan it this way, but I realize it's equally awkward that we're talking about this on New Year's Eve morning uh, after New Year's, or New Year's morning after New Year's Eve yesterday. What does it mean to understand this approach to drinking and to alcohol? Well, you get a few other verses uh, in Proverbs that talk about this. Probably the most famous is Proverbs chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Proverbs chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The interesting thing about Proverbs 20 is all of the things that alcohol abuse, that drunkenness does to someone in those verses are the opposite of how wisdom is laid out throughout the rest of Proverbs. In other words, wine, strong drink, give completely opposite results to wisdom throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs. Mocking in the book of Proverbs is someone who is arrogant, hard-hearted, not teachable, not humble. The word brawler is actually the word for being loud. Uh, you'll see it translated, not in this verse, but other verses with the same word. It's the word for being loud. People respond to alcohol in different ways, but it's a pretty common analogy even today that alcohol abuse will make people loud, make them more boisterous, more raucous than they would normally be. Then the idea there, whoever is led astray by it is not wise. This idea of being led astray means it takes you from the path of life. It takes you from the path of wisdom. The verses that come after this deal with anger, strife, quarreling, and laziness. You get down to Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. It says, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirits. Not the spirits, that would be the problem if you were filled with the spirits. You want to be filled with the spirit, capital S, singular. Being filled with the spirits would be the opposite uh, of that. That word debauchery is not a word, obviously, that we use very much, but it comes from the idea of wasteful excess, which, yes, you're right, does bring a whole new meaning to the idea of getting wasted. When you hear someone say they got wasted on alcohol, that is a wide open opportunity to say, did you know that that actually comes from the Bible? That there's a verse in the Bible, Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, that says when you get drunk on wine, it literally is a waste. 
And I emphasize that because that's exactly what Lemuel's mom is getting at in Proverbs 31. Her greatest concern, her greatest concern is that her son will waste his life. And when you think about your desire for your kids and your grandkids, your nieces, your nephew, those people that are in your life, the biggest concern about a destructive relationship or a destructive behavior is that they would waste who God has created them to be. And it is true, and many of you could testify to this this morning, it is true that God is gracious and forgiving and many of you have come out of past where you said, I can tell you the destruction of alcohol, I can tell you the destruction of relationships, and God has brought me out of that. And when I talk to people that that is their story, almost every time what they tell me is the thing I hate the most is all those years that I wasted. All those years that I could have been serving the Lord, I could have been doing what he was calling me to do, and I am thankful for his forgiveness, and I am thankful for his salvation, but I hate the fact that I wasted that time. And that's exactly what Lemuel's mom is getting here. Look at verse six. Because instead of getting drunk, what happens in verse four and five, look what she says in verse six. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Now we didn't see that coming, did we? <laughs> so, so this is one of those verses in the Bible that you read and then you have to read again and think, okay, what, what's going on here? What, what is happening in this verse? What is not happening in this verse is Lemuel's mom is not giving him the permission just to pass out a bunch of alcohol to everybody who is poor and in need. It's not what is happening here. What's happening here is there is a contrast with the word give, and then notice that the words drink and forget come in again. So earlier we saw drinking leads to forgetting, leads to perverting or depriving the needs of the poor. This time, he's supposed to give so others can then drink and forget their misery. The point is not the alcohol being given to the poor here. The point is that Lemuel is giving to others what otherwise he might have kept for them himself. What happens here is it becomes a picture of unselfishness. You, know, you see in Psalm 104 verse 15, there's wine that, it even says that God gives wine to gladden, gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You get to the New Testament, and in 2 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, Paul is talking to Timothy, who was a young pastor, and he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy, as a young pastor, seems to have been so stressed out by the situation that it was giving him stomach pains, and Paul says, just drink a little wine and settle down, and it's gonna, it's gonna be okay. Now, admittedly, to our situation, all of that sounds a little bit strange. How do we approach this issue of alcohol and drinking, and how do we, how do we understand this? Well, there's different approaches, so let me tell you the way that, that I see Scripture working out. The idea that a Christian would be someone who never, ever drank any alcohol 
It's a very admirable idea, and it may be exactly where you stand. That idea, though, for the Christian church is pretty limited to our part of the world. You get outside of our part of the world, and that idea is considered extremely strange. But over and over and over and over again, you see rejections of drunkenness in Scripture. The problem comes when the alcohol controls. The problem comes when you go that direction and it wastes your life, when it takes over your life and no longer the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't see in Scripture, and there are good, worthy, Bible-believing pastors and Christians who disagree with me on this, I don't see in Scripture any indication that a person who's a Christian could never have a drink of alcohol. I, I just don't see that. I understand that tradition. I understand where that comes from. I don't see that, but I see so clearly the dangers of alcohol and where it can lead and where it so often does lead. And many of you are either in the middle of that right now or you've been there before and you know that pain, you know that wastefulness, you know that hurt that comes from it. And so what's happening here is not condoning alcohol abuse. It's saying, King Lemuel, don't keep for yourself what could be used for others. Which then leads us down to verse 7 because, uh, oh, uh, not verse 7, what leads us down to verse 8 where it says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Here's where we finally get an answer to what's going on. Where King Lemuel's mom says, hey, give strong drink to those who are perishing, to those who are hurting, what we find out is that's a temporary measure to help out those people in a hard time. But what she really wants Lemuel to do is to use his power, to use his position, to use his speech, and to speak up for those who are most in need. Throughout the book of Proverbs, how you use your words, how you use your speech, says what's going on in your heart. It reveals the type of person that you are. If you look back in chapter 30 at some point, you can find back in chapter 30 around verse 14, it was this idea that you would have strong teeth and you would actually use your mouth to chew up those who are hurting. It would mean you're using your words to hurt those who are poor, to hurt those who are most in need. What Lemuel's mom is doing in Proverbs 31 is she's flipping that idea on its head and saying, use your power, use your position, use your words to help those who are most in need. And that's a good word for us in 2017. If you're in a position of power and privilege and you have an opportunity to speak up for the poor, to speak up for those who are hurting, to speak up for those who don't have a voice, Scripture says to do that, to use your words to correct the situation, to use your power, your position, your privilege, to use that in order to truly help out those who are most in need. You can do that at work. You can do that at school. You can do that through politics. You can do that in so many different ways, but it's this idea that if I'm able to speak for someone who can't speak and I don't do it, I've kept for myself what I could have given to them. What's happening here is Lemuel's mom is saying, is telling him, say no to destructive relationships, 
say no to alcohol abuse, not just because those are bad, but say no to those things so you can say yes to caring for those who are hurting. So you can say yes to using your position to do good. You say no to something in order that you can say yes to something else. The interesting thing about Lemuel's uh, situation here and who he is as a king is you actually see a reflection of this when you go to the birth of Jesus and the story of the kings, the magi who come to Jesus. You have these wealthy kings who come and they come to Herod, this person of power, this person who had all the wine, all the women they could ever wanted. And if those magi, if those wise men, would have just done what Herod told them, they would have been able to receive great rewards from Herod. They would have received the women and the wine. But instead, the rich kings go to the poor family in the poor town, and they bring the poor family these gifts. The irony and the beauty of Christmas is the poor child who receives the gifts isn't actually poor. He's actually the richest person who has ever lived, except he gave up his riches in order to become poor so that the poor, us, could become rich. Now, if you didn't follow any of that, that's okay, because it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Here's what Paul said. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. If you ever wonder, what's the birth of Jesus about? What's the life of Jesus about? What's this good news that people talk about in church? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is a great summary. The one who was God became God with us. He took on human flesh so that through his poverty, including his death, we might become rich. And then when we become rich with the goodness and grace and salvation of Christ, what do we do? We turn around and give that riches, share that riches with those who are most in need. He transforms our lives so that we're able to do for others what he has done for us. We're able to share that love and that riches with others. We say no to things that would take us away from that in order to be able to say yes to what God's really calling us to. You see this in Philippians chapter two. Philippians two, starting in verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what Lemuel's mom is trying to get at. But it keeps going in verse 5. In verse 5 of Philippians 2, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then it goes on to say, Being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is the idea of him becoming poor. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. 
That's the hope of Christianity. That through Jesus Christ, we are able to know true humility, true salvation, true life, so that then we can say no to everything that would take that life away, and we can say yes to everything that God is calling us to do, to help those who are in need, to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves, and ultimately to share that message of salvation with others. So what is God calling you to do this year? On your notes, if you were following along in the back, I've just kind of listed a couple of things that, that might be helpful to you. What's God calling you to do in response to worship this morning? The first is that you would listen to God's word through the gift of God's people. If you have a mom or a grandma who continues to speak God's truth into your life even when you don't want to hear it, thank the Lord for that and continue to listen. Know that that is a gift of God, that he has placed those people in your life who continue to speak to you even when you want to give up, even when you want to go your own direction. Thank God for those people. Continue this year to listen to God's word in your life through God's people. Second, don't waste your life on sinful destruction. If you're in a relationship, if you're in a habit or behavior, if you're contemplating going a direction that you know is going to waste your life, destroy your life, turn to Jesus. I realize it's complicated. I realize it's never that simple. There's so many things going on. And even though that decision is not simple, the answer is simple. That Jesus is there for you. That he will receive you, that he will heal you, that he will carry you forward as you continue to trust in him. Say no to those things so that you can worship the king. So you can do what the wise men did and go to the one who is poor, worship him, and in the process find true riches. And then as a result of that, that you would unselfishly give your life to serve others and speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. That when we experience God's grace in our life, what we want to do more than anything is to share that with those around us. May that be true of us this year. Let's pray, and then we're gonna wrap up by singing God's word together and, and being able to pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship this morning. Thank you for this passage in Proverbs 31 that I think I've always skipped over quickly or just never taken time to, to look at or think about. Father, it brings to mind some really difficult ideas as we think about relationships, as we think about families who are hurting because of alcohol abuse or other substance abuse, as we think about those in our life who we look at and we feel that they're so close to wasting their life because they're going astray from your word and your purposes. God, teach us through the power of Christ to say no to those things that we need to say no to in order that we can say yes to caring for those who are in need, to speaking up for those who need a voice, and ultimately say yes to sharing the hope of Christ. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your forgiveness. Father, I pray if there are those here this morning who end this service and all they might feel is shame or guilt, that they would know that that is not the purpose of worship, that that's not the purpose of the gospel that in the place of that shame and guilt there is hope and forgiveness 
And God, that they would turn to you and experience that mercy. They would know that they are loved and cared for. Father, thank you for your hope and mercy in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.